Welcome to The Future Strategist. Today, my guest is Phil Torres. He is the founder of the X-Risk Institute and the author of The End, What Science and Religion Tell Us About the Apocalypse. And that book was published this year. Welcome, Phil. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me on. So uh, why don't we discuss X-Risk today? What, what is an X-Risk? Uh, X-Risk is just a uh, abbreviation for existential risk. Uh, and that was a term that, well, the term has been used uh, uh, by numerous people, but it really became formalized. Uh, the concept sort of came into uh, uh, its own with the publication of a 2002 article in the Journal of Evolution and Te Technology by Nick Bostrom, who's currently the director of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. Um, so he introduced the term to... Um, the, the, the best way I think to, to describe it, it is a concept that, that reflects a particular transhumanist perspective. So it, it includes not only extinction scenarios, uh, which would be like, you know, the dinosaurs or the dodo, uh, situations like that where an, an evolutionary lineage, lineage uh, terminates, but it could also include situations that result in an irreversible decline in our quality of life, essentially something that prevents us from reaching a post-human state. Okay, so something that would keep us bound on Earth and now never allow us to update our brains or something. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, the, the notion of uh, post-human has also been discussed. I, I mean, Bostrom, again, is uh, uh, is sort of a leading, uh, he's sort of a pioneer a, a bit in with respect to these issues. So, I mean, he, he talks about it as the, as a significant augmentation of some core capacity of the human individual, be that life, um, you know, uh, longevity, be it uh, cognitive capacities, um, and or maybe emotional uh, abilities and so on. Um, yeah, so that that's sort of the notion of uh, that's what a okay. post human. So it's something that either wipes us out or prevents us from ever colonizing the universe, basically. Yeah, yeah, that definitely gestures at the at the central idea. Okay. And why did you find, found this institute? Well, um, as several scholars who work in this field have pointed out, the subject is woefully understudied. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite surprising that, you know, humanity spent so little resources, uh, time, money, uh, and so on, uh, trying to understand what our existential predicament in the universe is, um, you know, um, trying to, to better understand what various scenarios could result in our our termination, or again, some sort of uh, a permanent reduction in our potential as a, as a species. So, so I mean, I, I would say on the one hand, the topic is, I would argue, intrinsically fascinating. I mean, it's it it concerns. I mean, a lot of people are sort of interested in. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, the finitude of, of life is sort of a, a deep topic. Uh, this is the finitude of, of the species. I mean, it's, you know, it's that same sort of idea, but on the grandest scale. So I, I find it in, very inherently fascinating. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's, there's less an intellectual and much more pragmatic uh, argument, which is that I think it really, really matters. I mean, everything, you know, civilization is a great experiment right now, and we don't know how it's going to end. And basically everything we value in our lives uh, is, is um, you know, predicated on the continued existence of human civilization. So there really is, isn't a topic, I would argue, that's more important um, 
And yet, as as uh, some scholars have pointed out, I mean, there are more papers on published on dung beetles and Star Trek and various other subjects than there are uh, papers published on existential risk scenarios. Uh, yeah, and I certainly agree with you. It's when I tell people that's something I'm interested in, they kind of look at me like there's something wrong with me. Yeah, it's like you're you know that you say like you know well, I'm studying Satan or something. It just doesn't. It, it seems like something not worthy of serious study. Yeah, it's it's a bit perplexing why that is. I mean, I, I think on the one hand people find it there's there's a lot of contradictions here because on the you know on the one hand apocalyptic situations. Uh, narratives and so on are very popular in, in popular culture. I mean, they're all over the place. Um, they're also, I mean, religiously, you know, there's a huge number of people who, you know, 41% of Americans, for example, as of 2010, believe that Jesus will either probably or definitely return by 2050. So, I mean, the, the sort of apocalyptic interest and, um, you know, propensities are, are quite ubiquitous. Um, but on the other hand, it's like a, it's a really dark subject. A lot of people don't also don't want to think about it, or maybe there's a sense in which it's fun to think about within the context of fiction. But when you're talking about like, oh, you know, super volcanic eruption or, you know, the gray goose scenario where self-replicating nanobots are released into the, to the environment uh, and destroy the entire biosphere, you know, that, that sort of, um, I think has has an anti-soporific effect. It's you know it's a bit uh, troublesome to, to it's psychologically weighty, you might say, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if films have made it harder for us to take it seriously. I mean, we can watch a movie about a virus that kills everyone, or a zombie apocalypse or something. But to think, wait, wait, that re I mean, not the zombie apocalypse, but there really could be a virus that wipes out humanity. That yeah. seems like, wait a minute, no, that's science fiction. You're, you're not allowed to write about that if you're a serious scholar. Yeah, yeah, so that would be, um, I mean, I, I think sort of a, there have been scholars who have, who have sort of thought that, like this this is a bit too speculative of a topic. Um, I mean, maybe even more generally, you, you could say that future studies, uh, which is concerned with the three Ps, uh, you know, the the space of possible futures, the probable futures within that space of possible futures, and then the preferable ones, uh, which may either be the possible or the, the preferable. Um, you know, I mean, that, a lot of people think that that is, uh, this is a subject that it's just not, uh, it's not rigorous. It's it just can't be robust. And it, it's actually quite, it's only half true because there's a sense in which, um, you know, most futurology is kind of a horizontal discipline. People in all different disciplines do it. Theories are oftentimes predictive. That, there's a future logical component to, to a lot of theories. And when it comes to certain physical phenomena, um, you can predict with extraordinary accuracy what's going to happen in the future. And then on the other extreme, there are some, some more sociological phenomena that are very difficult to predict. Um, but so, so I guess also the takeaway point of this is that, um, you know, it's given what's at stake, when it comes to these scenarios that, you know, catastrophic scenarios, uh, it is absolutely worth the effort to, to try our best to understand what could potentially trip us up as a species moving forward. Um, you know, th there's, a, there's a sense in which I feel like sort of trying to understand the future, it's like driving on, a, you know, some sinuous road and late at night it's dark, you've got the headlights on, and you can kind of squint 
and see some objects in the distance. Um, you know, and then as you get closer, it becomes clear and clear what exactly they are. And maybe two people in the car, you know, from a distance are going to squint and sort of identify something a little bit differently. And then as you get closer, there might be a convergence of agreement. Um, but I mean, a lot of the existential risk stuff, it's, it is a bit of squinting into the, this, you know, the mist of things unknown. Um, but it's nonetheless, I mean, if, if that's the best we can do, uh, just because it's not great doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Yeah, I think I probably an analogy is nutrition. I mean, we, there's a lot we don't know about nutrition, but you still have to decide what to eat. Yeah. You know, saying, well, I don't know anything about nutrition, so I'm going to, you know, go with alcohol and, and candy. Yeah. Is, well, who knows? Well, that's not a good decision. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. Um, and also, I feel like there are, I mean, there are pretty strong arguments for thinking that certain future technologies could be existentially dangerous. Um, so, I mean, that behooves you to, to, to do the best you can with whatever tools you have, with whatever bits of knowledge are presently available to try to, you know, carve out certain pathways, certain, uh, you know, avenues that you might want to uh, pursue moving forward in an effort to, uh, to minimize the likelihood of some sort of, you know, existential catastrophe occurring. What are some of the tools that we can use to study X risk, or is it all going to be specific to the particular risk you're considering? Uh, that's a good question. In terms of general tools, um, well, I mean, I would say the field is 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 scientific in nature. Uh, I mean, it's empirical. There's most definitely a philosophical components. Um, perhaps this is most conspicuous when it comes to like superintelligence or the simulation hypothesis. Uh, these are very philosophical. The simulation hypothesis in particular is, is uh, um, it's based on a few empirical considerations, but it's definitely, uh, you know, at its core, a logical, uh, you know, a set of logical uh, steps that right. are taken. To the that, that's the idea that since we'll probably be able to create computer simulations of ourselves in a few centuries, there's a decent chance that we're currently existing in a future sim in a simulation by another civilization. Yeah, specifically the people yeah, in the world of Warcraft a thousand years from now will have people like us that are as conscious, whatever that means, as we are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and from a philosophical perspective, that seems you know uh, having conscious beings within a computer simulation seems entirely uh, feasible. Um, and I, so the simulation argument itself argues for that, you know, there's a tripartite disjunction. It's, it's one of three propositions that's true. But the, the core, I mean, the, the idea that's most often discussed is that is, according to the argument, if we end up running a whole lot of simulations with conscious individuals in the future, then it follows that uh, we're probably in a simulation. Because simulating all of those different universes provides very strong evidence that we're, we're in a a simulation. And it's actually, I mean, it's, a, it's an argument that has very few pieces. Um, it's just when you put the pieces together, you seem to get this very surprising and, and metaphysically uh, interesting you know, conclusion. Um, so a lot of those are sort of philosophical. But on the other end, I mean, there, uh, there are things like, you know, asteroid impacts, comet impacts, uh, and supervolcanic eruptions that are sort of robustly um, uh, predictable. Um, pr predictive is, is the wrong word, but you can you can determine 
their their likelihood within a given increment of time. Um, For those two, what are some probability estimates? I mean, how likely is it that mankind will be wiped out or sent back to the Stone Age by by an asteroid impact over sometime in the next, say, some hundred years? Um, let me about? think. Well, um, I, I'm trying to. Rem off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly what the statistics are, but I, I can say that, relatively speaking, uh, this is statistically true. You're more likely to die because of a meteorite than you are uh, because of a lightning strike. And just to, to, to put that in perspective as well, the probability of dying because of a lightning bolt is actually four or maybe ten times greater than the probability of um, dying in a terrorist attack. So it's um, uh, so I can't remember what the what like your exactly your lifetime probability is, or or what the ch the chance that a species destroying uh, asteroid or comet might strike the Earth, you know, in, in the time period of like a century or so. Um, but just to give you an idea, yeah, the the, the relative uh, probabilities are uh, you know give you give you a, 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 they hint at you know just how real the, the threat actually is. And if you, you, you sort of figure out how bad it would be for mankind to be wiped out, you, you could argue that's worse than if you kill one person, you know, times the population of all mankind. Because if you kill everyone, you destroy our future. You just don't kill all the people alive now, but you destroy our whole future. Yeah, exactly. So, so even if, you know, yeah. even if meteorites had the same probability as lightning strikes for an individual, you, you still might want to be a thousand times more worried about, you know, asteroid strikes. Yeah, definitely. Um, so often, you know, the, the, uh, the notion of a risk is, is uh, standardly defined as the consequences multiplied by the probability. So that means even if you have an improbable risk, if the consequences are huge, then the risk itself can be considered significant. Um, so that is exactly the case with existential risk. I mean, as you just said, you know, it's, it's not only global in scale, but it's transgenerational. I mean, it affects all future humans, uh, even if our species survives, even if we don't go extinct. You know, all future humans are living lives that are not nearly as good as, as they probably could be, uh, you know, if we were to reach some sort of post-human state. I, I've noticed when, I, when I've tried to talk with other people about the value of, of lives who don't yet exist, most people just look at you like you're kind of crazy. And most people don't assign any value to to people who don't yet exist or to minds that don't exist but could. Yeah, I know a lot of transhumanists do that. They would say, well, it's even more. There's so many more minds that don't exist but will if we survive. They should have more weight in whatever objective function we have than people who do exist. I yeah, that might be one of the critical differences between transhumanists and almost everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think initially the concept is somewhat uh, counterintuitive that future lives matter. Um, but there are also very good arguments. I mean, there are a lot of ethicists who who don't... Uh, I mean, so the, the concept is referred to as time discounting. You know, you discount uh, the, you know, the value of, of human lives decreases as you sort of peer further and further into the future. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, by I feel like there are two things to mention that perhaps help people to be more sympathetic with the idea. One is that we don't, you know, spatially discount, uh, you know, just because somebody is suffering in, in India uh, or China or New Zealand or Africa or wherever, uh, doesn't, doesn't, that, that 
the fact that of their geographical location has no bearing on the significance, the moral uh, importance or urgency of their suffering. Okay, so someone spatially far away from you, at least if you know you're a good person in Western civilization terms, you're not supposed to say, "Oh, they don't count because." They're 3,000 miles away as opposed to someone who's 50 miles away. Yeah, yeah. Joe, Joe, Joe Samo in China, his suffering just, just objectively means less than mine because he's so far away. And, you know, that distance itself uh, attenuates sort of the, the value of, uh, you know, it attenuates just sort of his moral status. Um, so, so that's one analogy. If we don't do it spatially, like, so why exactly would we do it temporally? Uh, may, maybe someone could come up with some arguments, but um, I mean, an another way to, to put it in terms of the, the temporal dimension is, you know, if, if there was a Holocaust that happened a thousand years from now, that's no worse than a Holocaust that happened, you know, 70 years uh, in the past. Uh, so, you know, bad things happening in the future are excuse me, um, uh, yeah, are, are no less bad than if they happen, you know, more approximately uh, in in time. So, yeah, there, there is this, and again, a lot of ethicists do not believe that future lives have any less value. So we should take them into consideration when we, in, in our sort of ethical calculus that determines present-day behavior, because present-day behavior is going to influence uh, these future individuals and certainly, and there's nothing, I mean, unarguably incontrovertibly, there's nothing more significant in terms of affecting future lives than existential catastrophes. That has some profound implications for like effective altruism. If you, there's so many more people who will exist in the future than exist in today, that if you give reasonable weight to people in the future, you'll probably allocate all of your charitable givings to make the future a better place and pretty much ignore people to, who are alive today, other than in that, you know, of course, will eventually affect the future. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, I mean, I feel like there are a number of kind of related issues to that. Um, it, it gets into, so I'm not an ethicist. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a dilettante when it comes to, to ethics, but, you know, depending on what your what version of, you know, there, there are three basic moral theories and then there are a whole bunch of different varieties of consequentialism. But, I mean, you could potentially argue that, you know, if the goal is to maximize a total amount of pleasure in the universe, then perhaps there's a moral imperative to simulate universes. You know, as long as you can guarantee that the, that the simulants have a pretty decent life. Um, there are similar kind of uh, murky areas when it comes to superintelligence. If you had some sort of uh, mind that could experience a degree of pleasure and satisfaction and happiness that, uh, say, exceeds uh, the aggregate of human suffering, then perhaps it's, it would be worth somehow sacrificing humanity uh, to, to create this, this other mind. Or you could even imagine scenarios where it torturing us is the morally right thing to do because the amount of pleasure it gets is greater than uh, the amount of suffering that we've encounter. Um, so in terms of um, effective altruism itself, I haven't, I'm not conversant enough with the theories to know exactly. I, I know there's a tight link between existential concern uh, or concern with existential risk and this effective, the, the you know, this burgeoning uh, effective altruism movement. 
So I suspect their line of reasoning is is exactly what you were saying, but I would defer to okay, sure. to you or to, to someone else who knows more. What are like the few extras that you think pose the biggest threat to us that have the highest probability of manifesting? So that's a really great question. Part of the reason, uh, I, I some, somewhat evaded your question earlier on about why exactly I founded the X Risks Institute or XRI. Uh, and and a, main, a main reason is that while there there is an increasing number of institutions that are focused on existential risk, there really, I, I mean, a sort of lacuna in the literature right now, as far as I could tell, is, is people, scholars focusing on the various agents who might use advanced technology. So a lot of people say, oh, these advanced technologies, these are the greatest threat to human survival. It's not asteroids. Uh, it's not, you know, super volcanoes. It's probably not climate change. You know, it's unlikely that we're going to have a runaway greenhouse effect um, or that biodiversity loss, you know, we're in the midst of the, the six or in the early stages of the six mass extinction event. It's not super clear that that we're that this is going to entail our own uh, extinction. Uh, it could certainly entail widespread uh, and, and quite severe suffering, but it doesn't seem like we're going to go extinct or that our posthuman future is going to get closed off to us. Um, so rather, it's, the, it's these novel, excuse me, novel technologies like biotechnology, synthetic biology, nuclear weapons, uh, nanotechnology, and perhaps certain AI systems. So a lot of people... I mean, a lot of sophisticated stuff has been written about these technologies and how they could be used, but but not many people have said anything uh, uh, to any degree of detail about who might want to do this, why they might want to do this, what you know, what are the the various properties of agents who might grab a hold of you know a nanofactory, you know, which could produce you know potentially any product for basically for free, um, who would grab a hold of this and then use it to uh, to inflict unprecedented harm on civilization. So the X-Risk Institute is, is really dedicated to not just to understanding the technologies, but to understanding the agents, the, the, the actors in the world who can make decisions. Um, and, and these are really important. So, so I, I, I have a forthcoming article in the Journal of Evolution Technology and, I, and the and XRI just released a technical report on this. And one one of the the thought experiments that that we mentioned that I think is helpful to sort of underline the importance of agential risks, as I call them, um, is you can imagine two different worlds. One is a world that's absolutely cluttered with doomsday machines of different sorts. So that could be you know nuclear weapons or nuclear arsenals that you know uh, number in the you know contain like eight thousand. 10,000 nuclear weapons, enough to induce a nuclear winter, um, nanotechnology, biotechnology, and so on. So this world is cluttered with doomsday machines, but the individuals that inhabit this world are generally very peaceable, compassionate, what, what I would call from my you know, secular uh, ethical perspective, um, very moral individuals. And then you can imagine an alternative world where there's only one species destroying technology, but the world is absolutely full of warmongering, uh, crazy, violent, aggressive, bellicose individuals. So which world is, is safer? I mean, if you look only at the technological risks, then you would say the world one is, is 
most definitely more dangerous. Right. right? There's just way more risk. But if you take into account the agential uh, component, then you would probably say the second world. I mean, I certainly would say the, the second world is the one I wouldn't want to live in. I feel like there's more chance of annihilation in that world, even though there's only one doomsday machine. Again, so you so, sort of look at this in World War One and World War Two. In World War One, all the leaders were they were great people, but they were okay, and they mm -hmm. kind of blundered into it. While World War Two, you had a bunch of you know psycho, evil, horrible people, and they you know deliberately went into it. You can you can get disaster you know both ways. Yeah, you absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I, and I, I certainly don't want to say that world number one is safe. Um, there's still there's still the possibility of error. For example, someone could you know someone could trip over a wire on the ground and hit a button. You know, you know you could come up with all sorts of imaginative uh, doomsday scenarios for that. But um, but it's certainly important to so basically, you know what what this what this um, framework implies is that there are two ways for mitigating. Uh, the most the most dangerous type of risk in the future, namely ones associated with advanced technology. On the one hand, you could try to neutralize the technologies. On the other hand, you could try to neutralize the agents in some way. So that's in order... Like, that's kind of like the gun control debate. What do we worry about? Is it the people that kill or is it the guns or... Yeah, yeah. So there, there are parallels, although I would... Um, so I would add something to that. Uh, I'll do, do that in just a moment. Um, so, so yeah, in order to neutralize the technologies, you need to understand the technology, understand the various properties. Uh, that's the only way you're going to be able to, to make, you know, take effective action uh, to reduce the risk that stems from them. Same applies to the agents. You know, you have to understand that, for example, it, it, you know, maybe there's a, an apocalyptic terrorist of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, they're occasionally mentioned in the existential risk literature. But nobody really goes into any detail. And, it, and I don't get the impression from, uh, and my impression could be wrong, uh, or this, this statement could be wrong, but I don't get the impression that a lot of people have really thought much about it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, what scares me about a lot of the, the sort of Islamic terrorist attacks is you look at the background and some of these people are engineers. Yeah. And if you think, okay, well, right now an engineer could do a lot of damage, but they can't create an X risk. But what happens in 30 years with gene editing? I mean, how how bad, you know, what, you know, 10 engineers, they don't have state actors helping them. How many people can they kill? Could they wipe out our species? Yeah, great question. And this is exactly the sort of thing that needs to be studied, because you're right. I mean, terrorism generally is a hobby of the middle or upper classes. Mm -hmm. uh, the Islamic State's a, a bit of a different, uh, a, a, a breaks the, the pattern a little bit, because they, they're, you know, the, the criteria that they use to, uh, you know, that people have to satisfy in order to join the group are pretty lax. Although I've heard the leaders were like the elite under Saddam Hussein. So there are a lot of um, like, um, you know, sort of second level below the, the top guy, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, um, who's, who's a P, in fact, a PhD, got a PhD from a very good university in Quranic studies. Um, uh, but a lot of those people, yeah, they, so there, there are sort of three actors within the Islamic State. One are opportunists um, who, who generally are like the, these perhaps maybe even secular individuals who were left over after the, the process of debathification. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a huge mistake. That was the dissolution of basically all of Saddam's army rather than keeping parts of it 
in order to maintain control. So they well, just a side point. I mean, we did that. We did denazification with Germany, and that really did work out. So yeah, well, I so I think I think it's pretty much unanimously agreed among scholars that this case was was uh, a bad decision. I don't know enough about the you know the right after World War II because I. I Maybe World War II was a little bit different because, you know, there were so many uh, countries involved and Germany was, you know, surrounded by uh, its, its enemies. You know, we're both culturally East much more like Germany, so we probably had a better feel for what was going on. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, it was a mistake to, to dismantle the military that resulted in this huge power vacuum, which, you know, made room for all these Shia militias and the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, uh, you know, to, to grow back. Um, so yeah, there, there are some secular, but without a doubt, I mean, there are also a lot of individuals in the Islamic state who are true believers. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are a few who have just been coerced. That's, that's the third group. Those who have just sort of like, you know, they, there's nowhere to go. There's no way to escape, uh, the horror show of the Islamic state. So you just join them. And then there's also a sizable group of true believers. And this is probably the people at the very top running the Islamic State. In fact, there's very strong evidence that these these people really were guided by their apocalyptic ideology. Uh, it's one of the reasons the, the Islamic State nearly failed uh, all the way up to like 2014, because uh, they made a bunch of decisions on this apocalyptic timetable time based on their interpretation of, of uh, the Quran and the Hadith literature, and it ended up uh, <laughs> it ended up backfiring quite severely. Um, so, anyways, yeah, I mean, it's it is. Um, I guess the ultimate point I, we were talking about, uh, you know, the Islamic State is sort of allowed in all sorts of psychopaths and, you know, nutcases, individuals who just want to uh, to kill other people. But other, many other, most other groups, including religious terrorist groups, which are are the number one uh, type of terrorist group these days, um, they really are quite selective, and the members tend to be tend to be very. Uh, well-educated. Bin Laden was well-educated. The guy who runs uh, Al-Qaeda right now, um, uh, Al-Zawahiri, is, uh, is an eye surgeon. Uh, there's also examples from like the, like Al Shinrikyo, the Japanese yeah. cult, that in 1995 released sarin in the Tokyo subway and they killed a bunch of people. It was the biggest terrorist attack in Japanese history. Um, uh, they drew actually from super smart people uh, from the top universities in Japan. Yeah, I think you're making an important point. I mean, I think a lot of like the transhumanists, we tend to be atheists and we think that, well, people don't really believe their religion. And if they do, they must not be very bright. But it's certainly true. There's a lot of true believers, people who think the apocalypse would be a good thing. And they're very smart. And yeah. you got to figure out, OK, what happens, you know, in, a, in the future when they can use CRISPR when they can modify smallpox. I mean, what, what's, what's the world going to be like? Do we have any chance of surviving that world? What can we do now, do now to prepare for it? Yeah. So, so I totally agree. I think one of the, the, the biggest, um, struggles for a lot of secular people is wrapping their heads around the fact that there are individuals out there, billions who genuinely believe. Yes. In, in these, these super, you know, this, the metaphysics of their religion, these supernatural entities. And also they believe in the eschatology of their religion. 
And eschatology, in fact, is the is really the core of. So, what is eschatology? Esch, eschatology is the end times uh, narrative of the religions, and this is absolutely the core of at least the Abrahamic religions. But also, I mean, there are plenty of like Japanese folk religions, um, uh, you know, various cults, you know, that that uh, that have emphasized eschatology. But it, it's really the core of the Abrahamic religions because it 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 provides the ultimate theodicy. I mean, it's the ultimate, uh, the ultimate explanation for, or justification for why there is evil in the world. Because in the end, cosmic justice will be enacted on this, this horrific world full of sin and suffering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bad people are going to go to hell for all eternity and the good people are going to be rewarded in paradise. Um, so yeah, eschatology is, is a, is a really crucial, component of the religion and a lot of people really really take it seriously um you could definitely see that in in the u.s you know a lot of people they're literally congressmen who have explicitly stated that they don't believe in climate change because it simply doesn't fit into the biblical narrative mm -hmm. um you know reagan talked about nuclear weapons in terms of uh the end times beliefs uh a, a, called dispensationalist dispensationalism as a particular interpretation of uh you know of revelation and ezekiel and all the other prophetic uh books in the bible so yeah so you know th there are individuals out there who so it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that people might actually be driven by this they might be willing to die for these beliefs um you know the islamic state i feel like is a good example i mean there's a sense of like moral urgency to the situation that is is produced by the you know the conviction that the end is nigh is rapidly approaching you know the battle of of armageddon which the islamic state and a lot of muslims in fact believe will happen in a tiny little town in syria called dabik uh is which is why a bunch of beheading videos were there they were really trying to taunt the u.s you know western forces to meet them there um these these really are motivating issues. In, in fact, so I have another article that's forthcoming in Skeptic in which I, I talk about what I, what I call the, the clash of eschatologies. And it basically is just the survey of, of how absolutely ubiquitous eschatological notions have been throughout history. Uh, from the founding of Christianity, basically the founding of the first organized religion, which is Zoroastrianism. I mean, that was very, very well could have been an apocalyptic movement. To Christianity, a lot of Christian scholars think Jesus was an apocalyptic uh, prophet who failed and then basically sacrificed himself uh, in an effort to, to hurry the, the end times. Um, Islam probably started like that. And then there's, I mean, the Crusades were, you know, members, the, the individuals who participated in the Crusades, many of them were motivated by this notion that the end is imminent. And this, you know, the, these are, you know, battles at the very end of, of at the very climax of human history. Um, and even it's even the case some historians have argued that Nazism and Marxism were really infused with eschatological themes, mostly borrowed from Christianity. That's why Hitler talked about the thousand year Reich, which is taken right out of uh, Revelation, which talks about the, the millennial kingdom. You know, it occurs to me if different religions that have separate origins all you know, are considering the apocalypse and don't consider it a bad thing, that probably means our brains have some attachment to the apocalypse, or at least they're, they're open to the idea of liking it. So even non-religious people, you would, 
you would guess might like the idea of the end of times. Yeah, I, so I, I agree. I, I think you can see this tendency probably in the singularitarian type views. Um, you know, so, some people have sort of disparagingly referred to the singularity as the techno rapture. Um, the rapture but, for the nerds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and but but there's another sense in which um, I don't I don't think it's all that mysterious why people uh, are have been throughout history quite ubiquitously obsessed with the end times. I mean, the world at, you know, at various moments can, uh, can suck. I mean, it can, you know, it can be rough. Life can be difficult. The, the thought that, you know, at some point this earth is going to be destroyed and then remade, uh, in a heavenly form is, is extraordinarily comforting. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it gives, there's a tremendous hope. Uh, again, it's also it's also connected with theodicy, with you know this one of the biggest you know problems uh, facing theologians and philosophers of religion today. Why is there so much evil in the world? And uh, yet again, God you know banishing all the you know the evildoers to perdition is uh, you know could be seen as a potentially as a as a compelling answer to that question. So um, yeah, so it's. You know, it really is, uh, people really take this stuff seriously. And the other point that I, I think is crucial to make is we have this sense because, I mean, I think a lot of people in the West have this sense that religion is dying out. Um, you know, as we become more technologically advanced, you know, with the Internet, we're able to communicate, you know, across cultures and so on. And all of this is uh, is is working to dissolve to weaken to vitiate religion mm -hmm. and i it, that's that's just wrong um religion is growing yeah especially uh, for evolutionary reasons religious people have more kids than non-religious people exactly that is a main reason that there, there's just a difference in terms of uh you know the number of members of one's family it's funny it's ironic i've, I've read that evolution favors people who you know it favors the spread of genes for people who don't believe in evolution uh, yeah, yeah. That there's. I mean, there is. Um, I believe it's it's true that that like for example, really educated people tend not to have, not to have uh, kids them, themselves, and you know. So yeah, ultimately, I mean, there was a Pew poll, uh, or not? It wasn't actually a poll. It was based on polls, but it was an extrapolation into the next forty uh, years or so. Uh, it, it was published by Pew Research Center, and they basically argue that, you know, Islam is going to grow very rapidly. And ultimately, if, number, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, we should expect there to be 2.63 like, billion Muslims by 2050. There will be roughly the same number as Christians. So Christians will, will stay, percentage-wise, they're going to stay about the same. Muslims are going to increase dramatically. That's the, Islam is the biggest growing religion by far. The, the number of uh, unaffiliated, religiously unaffiliated individuals will go up. But due to population growth, you know, we're supposed to be 9.3 billion humans by 2050. The percentage is actually supposed to go down. <laughs> so I think from like 16 to 13 percent, if I, again, if I remember correctly. So, um, yes. Yeah, so so, so re, I think re, religion is not the, it's not the only phenomenon that I think is relevant to agential risk studies. 
but it is a main uh, uh, a major phenomenon, and it's not going anywhere. Yeah, so I, it really it needs to be studied. We need to understand the eschatology. We need to understand the apocalyptic views, and the tendencies and, and what sort of individuals under the the spell, you know, hypnotized by their various religious dogmas, might, you know, if there was a button, imagine there's a doomsday button, you know, right there on the wall. I know I wouldn't press it, even if I could. So now let's ask what kind of individuals would look at that button and go, yeah, I'm going to push that. Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. I mean, or, or imagine, you know, some, an oracle says, look, in 40 years, a group of 10 people is, are going to destroy your species. What would we predict now about them? What, what do we think they're like? And we would probably say they're motivated by some religious belief. Yeah, that's a, that's that's, that at least. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I would also identify, I mean, there are other, other so there are, I think there are lots and lots of types of agents that could induce an existential catastrophe through air. You know, they, they, new, you could imagine there being, you know, who knows if Donald Trump you know, <laughs> gets into the Oval Office. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's honestly, it, to my mind at least, it's not crazy to think that there could be a nuclear conflict. I mean, George Bush was working on uh, Bunker Buster, you know, these smaller nuclear weapons. Well, I mean, any president could. All it takes is a computer error, you know, the right sequence of errors that cause the United States and Russia to both think the other is attacking them. Yeah. It's, it's not implausible that that could happen under the best of presidents. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, the probability in the past has been really high. I mean, Kennedy mentioned during the Cuban Missile Crisis that it was, you know, the odds of an all-out nuclear exchange between one and three and even. Yeah. Um, and any, anybody who's actually seen, you know, there have been some reports recently, I believe, I believe John Oliver, um, you know, his show, maybe like a year ago, they had a really good little segment on the condition of a lot of the nuclear silos uh, out in the Midwest, I guess. And a lot of them are like really in disrepair. Like, you know, doors are kept open with crowbars and uh, and they still use the, the old floppy disks. I think part of that is for security reasons because it's harder to hack into. You know, I, I, wonder, I mean, Peter Thiel mentioned that in his speech at the Republican convention. Yeah. I just wonder if they're not lazy and like, okay, this looks bad. What can we say? Oh, yeah, it's secure against hacking. That's why we, we you know, we haven't changed our technology in 40 years. You can always, you know, when you're really lazy about something, you can always come up with a good reason. Yeah, I'm yeah, protecting my child by playing video games. I'm letting him flourish by focusing my attention on something other than him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe there was a rush to to come up with some yeah I mean, excuse that's compatible. You know, I mean, the worst case is that's like really bad, but they don't have the expertise to update. Yeah, because I imagine. I mean, I know a lot of top security jobs have a lot of trouble getting talent because first they don't pay a lot, and second. You have to be a U.S. citizen, and the like people were born in America, and a lot of our best programmers were not born in the United States, and those who work can tend to earn a high salary. So yeah. it might be that they're just too incompetent to be able to improve their systems. I don't know. Maybe, and maybe you know, the floppy disk argument, maybe it really is more secure, and maybe the best minds have decided this is what they should be doing. I don't know, but yeah. it's still scary what could be going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't know for sure either. Um, it sounds prima facie kind of plausible that perhaps it's, it's a security thing, but I, I don't... Then why aren't other companies doing it? I mean, why doesn't Goldman Sachs, who I'm sure is better about security than anything the U.S. government has? 
I mean, they yeah. must be terrified of people breaking in or even insiders engaging in insider trading. Why doesn't Goldman Sachs have floppy disks for their most critical data? Maybe they are and they're hiding it, but my guess <laughs> is they don't have it. And my guess is whatever Goldman Sachs is doing is better than whatever any agency of the U.S. government is doing. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, my guess would be that maybe there are more constraints with Goldman Sachs. Like the information has to be uh, um, exchanged in, in a way that it doesn't at the nuclear silo, which is basically just, you know, it needs to be able to do uh, one thing, which is, you know, get a call from the uh, from the president and then launch a missile. But but also th th this is outside of my area of expertise as well. Okay. Um, so I, I'm just sort of conjecturing here. Well, what do you think we should do about, you know, the risk of religiously motivated people trying to destroy the world? Is there is it are you just saying I don't know, but right now what we should do is study it? I mean that that would be a major contribution if you could just get people to focus on the problem. But do you have you know possible solutions or possible more areas of, of further, more narrowed study on this? Yeah, I do. Um first of all, I I would also mention that I do think there are other types of agents that are just as dangerous as religious <laughs> fanatics. Um I, I think there could be, you know, idiosyncratic agents uh on the model of like school shooters or something. I mean, there, there are examples of people out there who just wanted to kill as many people and then die. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you can imagine, again, imagine them in a, in a room with a doomsday button that's within arm's reach. Uh, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe they would push it. Maybe they would push it even more eagerly than mm -hmm. an apocalyptic terrorist, because for a lot of the apocalyptic terrorists, part of their eschatological narrative is that their group is going to survive. So they kind of, in a sense, they want to to preserve themselves, uh, human extinction would be would be antithetical to to their to their view, but that's not necessarily the case. So I, I think that's one instance. In another um, another type of agent that strikes me as particularly worrisome is eco terrorists, and not because they are dangerous now, with very very few exceptions. There have been some violent eco terrorists, mm -hmm. but the vast majority, despite the fact that I, I think the FBI has referred to um, the uh, Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front as as like worrisome, you know, terrorist groups. But it's really pretty unfounded. I mean, a lot of scholars would argue that because um, most of them are quite, quite pacifistic. Although the people uh, in favor of animal rights, they can be quite aggressive. I don't think they kill humans. Yeah. yeah, but they certainly I, I've heard that there's a lot of labs that have to have enormous security. They have to the paradox is that they have to keep their animals confined and in awful conditions, because if they don't, the labs will be broken into and the animals will be set free where they'll probably quickly die. Yeah, I, I totally think that's true. I, I absolutely think that there are aggressive, you know, um, movements within the, these larger, uh, you know, philosophically defined um demographics um but but a lot of them so far they haven't really been you know they, there aren't like people going in with you know a kalashnikov and like taking out you know 30 people um again with, with kind of few exceptions but ted kaczynski might be you know kind of a an exception you know he, he obviously sent bombs around to different people um and killed a, a number of individuals and his ultimate goal was was to uh, not through the bombing, but but his ultimate uh, his ideological aim uh, or desire, I should say, was for technological civilization to collapse. Um, and the the key thing about the the eco terrorists is that by all accounts, the climatic situation and the 
the situation with respect to uh, the you know, global ecosystem is projected to get much worse. Mm-hmm. So there are some scholars, uh, Frances Flannery uh, is, is one. She's done really uh, superb work uh, on these issues. And she feels fairly strongly that uh, we should expect ecoterrorism to actually increase in the future as, it, as the effects of climate change and biodiversity loss become more and more salient. Yeah, and I uh, guess that, if you're convinced that global warming is going to destroy mankind, it, you know, in your mind, I don't think we'll certainly believe this, but you might say, well, it's worth engaging in some terrorism to slow down our economic growth or to reverse it. Yeah. So there's that. And I think there's also this sense that, look, the, the biosphere is wilting and it's wilting because of one organism. And that's Homo sapiens. So, you know, if, if you accept this, you know, the philosophy is called biocentrism, this view that humans are are worth no more than any other organism, a cockroach, a cricket, you know, blade of grass. Uh, life is, is um, you know, it's sort of radical kind of egalitarianism with respect to the value of, of living organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you believe that, then, then you have, uh, it, you may very well come to conclude that, that there's an imperative to uh, exterminate humanity because we are the problem. And, and as a matter of fact, we are the problem. Um, but you know, you, you, that doesn't Certainly. that doesn't automatically lead to the conclusion that we should be exterminated. Right. But and you can imagine, is, even if almost everyone rejects it, it only takes a small number of people. If you have the technology to edit viruses in a way that could kill most of us, to you know, create destroy civilization. Exactly. Yeah. So so the yeah these future technologies are projected to be more and more powerful. Um, Although, do you think defense, I'm sure defense will get better, but what will be, you know, relatively, which will be more powerful, like defense or offense in a lot of these technologies for, for destruction? It's hard to say. I, I think a lot of people have, I think historically it's been the case that the defenses have sort of lagged behind the the offensive technology. Um, you know, the sword was invented before the shield. Yes. Uh, missiles before missile defense systems and so on. Um, perhaps we're getting to, to a situation where where we are th- the very fact of being hyper aware of that historical situation could potentially uh, galvanize us to work that much harder to create the defenses, uh, either concomitantly with the offensive technologies or, you know, anticipate them in some way to, I don't know, maybe make the, the defenses before. But. You're right. I mean, you know, as population grows, there's going to be more and more bad guys. There's also going to be more good guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's sort of uh, an optimistic thought. But on the darker side, I mean, the, the you know, the these malicious individuals are going to be empowered like never before. And it could, as I've written before, I mean, the, the terrorists of the future, or not just terrorists, but the, the malicious individual of the future is going to have a bulldozer rather than a shovel to dig mass graves, you know, for all of their their perceived enemies. Do you know today how much damage could a small group do? I mean, have we been lucky that what happened on 9-11 has been like the worst terrorist attack? Are there things that could be much, much worse that haven't happened? Or have terrorists, given today's technology, kind of maxed out in the amount of destruction they've been, they can do? Um, I think it could be worse, for sure. Um, I, I mean, there, there could, for example, be uh, an instance of nuclear terrorism. Mm-hmm. And there are... A, a large number of scholars, Graham Allison at Harvard University is, is a, you know, sort of a leading figure uh, in this field. And he wrote a book in, I think it was 2004, called 
um, I think it was called Nuclear Terrorism, the Ultimate Preventable Catastrophe. And he predicted that between 2004 and 2014, there was roughly 50% chance that somewhere in an American city, mm -hmm. uh, a nuclear weapon would be detonated. So obviously he was wrong, but, um, well, I mean, it, he wasn't wrong. Obviously it didn't happen. Right. But, uh, you know, he's, he's a very... He's a very cautious, careful thinker. And I don't believe from everything I've seen of him and read of his that he has any kind of inclination towards hyperbole. So I don't think he was exaggerating the numbers. Um, and again, I mean, it really is the case that a lot of experts sort of more or less agree that we've kind of been pretty lucky or maybe they're, you know, I mean, within the Al-Qaeda organization, there was huge huge backlash against bin Laden's plans to, to, you know, send the two planes into the world trade centers. Um, no, I mean, on the one hand for theological reasons, some of them didn't think it was, you know, it was moral, but on the other hand, there was a strategic issue that this is probably going to cause a huge, um, response. Yeah. You know, a hammer. Like the Japanese mistake at Pearl Harbor. You don't do something like that against someone much stronger than you. Yeah, it might really not be not be in your best interest. So, I mean, there were a lot of Al Qaeda people who were like, "Well, you know, we want to, uh, you know, to spread Islam and to protect Muslim lands from from Western occupation and so on and so on." But the, the best way to do it is not to send these, you know. So, so, so maybe the reason we haven't seen a nuclear bomb go off in American cities has also a lot to do with the fact that maybe they've just decided not to do it. You know, what I don't get about like the Muslim you know, people who want to spread Islam is say, look, look at the demographics. I mean, the smart thing to do is to like, you know, have a lot of Muslims in the West be really nice and be totally accepting. Have you know of the West, have the West be completely comfortable with you, and then in, pretty soon you'll be the majority. Yeah, that's you, you know it, the status quo. You win. You yeah. don't need to like make people like Donald Trump, you know, get support for wanting to exclude you. It seems like it, the, the radicalisms are doing the stupidest possible thing, given their stated goal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there's, definitely, there's definitely different ways to look at the situation. Um, I think from their view, there's been such humiliation and such injustice. Some of the injustices, I think, morally sensitive people can be, you don't have to agree with, you know, oh. the responses or the ideologies of them to agree with the, the um, unethicality of certain situations that have been thrust upon them. Oh, yeah, but I mean, for any large yeah. group of people, bad things have happened to them. And... Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so yeah, so, so having said that there are other types of agents that I think should be focused, should be the, the, tar the objects of study in addition to apocalyptic terrorists, I do think that apocalyptic, apocalyptic terrorists constitute a significant uh, threat moving forward, and I think it's crucial to understand what what drives them? Because you you would ask me earlier about solutions. I mean, I, right, right. I, for example, I think I think schol the scholars are really a large majority uh, concur that further military action is just not going to help the situation over there. Uh, in fact, I think there was a study, a very detailed, comprehensive study, which I haven't actually read yet, but I think it was just published a couple days ago in a top journal. That gave some a re, some really good quantitative a, a really good quantitative analysis of the relationship between military action and the further rise of 
you know, of these extreme ideologies. It reinforces their worldview. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, the, the Iraq war, for example, was, you know, I mean, even people who worked for Bush uh, in the CIA, uh, you can read their like memoirs and stuff, and they pretty much all of them agree that we really, really helped propagate bin Laden's uh, ideology, his narrative, all the stuff he was saying was going to happen totally happened. It didn't happen the way he actually expected. He thought we would invade Afghanistan rather than Iraq. But, you know, Iraq was enough, you know. And of course, out of it, we got the Islamic State. I mean, I certainly agree. A lot of scholars are saying that, you know, for every terrorist we kill, there are two more that that arise. But what about the historical example of, you know, Germany and Japan in World War II? We used massive amounts of violence against both those countries, and it really worked in getting rid of those radical ideologies of, you know, Nazism and whatever the official name is of the emperor-worshipping militant Japanese ideology. I mean, it, it yeah. did work with those two countries. Yeah, so I, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I think, let, let me just say, by the way, I, I think pacifism is, is not a defensible uh, moral position. That's, that's my view. I, I, I think oftentimes it could do more harm uh, than good. But that being said, I also think that really thoughtful... You know, if you're going to use violence or your military, uh, it has to be super, super judicious and, and well thought out. And I think in the case of, of World War II, for example, there were dealing with states mm-hmm. and with terrorist groups. It's it's just a different beast. Um, you know, it's it's not possible. So, for example, you know, you could fighting a state, you could wipe out half their army and the state would be uh, would be in bad shape. You know, it would be at a huge disadvantage then on the battlefield. But, you know, what's, what counterterrorism experts call uh, whack-a-mole, you know, is a strategy for taking out these terrorists. We take out the number one guy over here, the number two guy over there. And individuals will, will simply just take their place. And the, the key thing is that, is that you have to target not the terrorists, not the, the vehicles in which those, those ideological memes are traveling, but you need to target the ideology mm-hmm. and and dropping bombs on them is not going to defeat the ide- ideology. In fact, it will oftentimes do the exact opposite. Again, the, the Iraq war resulted in the Islamic State, which is, you know, the biggest, most well-funded terrorist organization in human history. Uh, you know, that's, that was an experiment we conducted. Mm-hmm. And if you just look at the results, it's it's pretty unambiguous that, you know, violence there is not the right thing. You really need to work on on um, compromising the ideology. And there, there are definitely people w- working on this and, and proving that it's, it can be effective if you work with like moderate Muslim so groups. We need to study like, the science of persuasion and figure out what kind of means to propagate to underline the Islamic State. Yeah, yeah. The Islamic, the Islamic State, for example, you know, one sort of, um, one sort of uh, you know, um, action that we could pursue that is perhaps quasi-militaristic, you, you might say, is to take out their social, their, their recruitment uh, um, apparatus. So, you know, the, the social uh, media that they use to, to, to draw people in, uh, if that can be compromised, that would be a big help. But on the other hand, you know, working with, you know, show, revealing to uh, the Muslim community just what life is like in, in you know, some of the, the areas that the Islamic State has controlled, you know, where some 8 million people have, have lived for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it's it's really horrific. It's not you know no, nobody in their right mind would really actually want to go there. Well, they must know. I mean, with all the refugees flowing out of Syria, that must kind of be common knowledge, and at least imagine Western Europe among yeah. the community. I don't know because I, I I suspect that some of the people who who go there, you know, who join up with ISIS. Mm-hmm aren't the type of people who necessarily follow the news <laughs> very closely. Yeah, um, there are, in fact, some cases of, I mean, I mentioned earlier the three different types of sort of individuals who, members of ISIS. Um, there, are, <laughs> there are actually cases of people uh, who have left from, you know, Western European countries and literally in the airport on the way t- to join the group bought, like, uh, Islam for dummies and the Quran for dummies. <laughs> so I mean, these are people who are like, you know, there's something attractive about the aura of the ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you look at their online propaganda magazine, it is really well done and it looks really exciting. It's it's like images right out of, you know, a blockbuster Hollywood thriller. Uh, explosions in the background with these strong, uh, you know, individuals with their guns and, and whatnot, just sort of calmly walking, you know, towards the camera, you know. So I mean, so I, I you know, there, I think some of the people who who end up going there aren't the type of people who are like look, reading about the refugee crisis and thinking hard about, uh, you know, Islamic tradition and so on. They're just kind of attracted to the idea of being a martyr, of fighting and you know, the grand battle, you know, Armageddon or something. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think the apocalyptic um, uh, movements really need to be understood because apocalyptic movements are the most dangerous form of religious terrorism. And religious terrorism has been shown to be uh, by far the most lethal and indiscriminate form of terrorism, much more lethal and indiscriminate than past forms of terrorism that really dominated the 19th and 20th centuries and were motivated by really political ideologies like anarchism and Marxism and nationalism, separatism, and in some cases like single issues. Mm-hmm. This, so, is a, yeah. this is a crazy idea, but I wonder if video games could help with this problem. If, if people have this yearning to be part of some apocalyptic struggle, if you know, we've got really nice virtual reality video games where you can be marching with Mohammed or Charlemagne or wherever you want, leading the armies of your religion to victory, then you know, people who want to do that will just do it in the video games. It'll be easier, it'll be cheaper. And that'll satisfy this need for vengeance or violence or whatever we'll call it. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting thought. I, I've never, I've never, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't ruminated that before. <laughs> so I don't have any, any real feedback on it. But it's, it's certainly an intriguing idea. Uh, I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing that perhaps you might want to study. You know, that is the the existential risk scholar might want to, you know look into. I mean, the other things I've mentioned is, you know, uh, bullying has been linked to uh, school shootings, you know, to, to this sort of mindset in which someone says, you know, screw it. I want to, I, I want to die and take out as many people <laughs> as possible uh, as I go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it, it even sounds kind of silly and trivial, like, oh, we should, we should reduce uh, bullying. Right. Uh, you know, that should be a top priority. But actually, maybe it should. Maybe if we live in a world where there are doomsday buttons within reach, uh, and, and perhaps if, if advanced technology becomes sufficiently uh, accessible in the future, then maybe something like that actually is profoundly important. You know, we really do need to reduce the number of disgruntled individuals in society. And heck, if studies show that bullying, you know, 
is one of the causes of, of people being disgruntled and sinking into these states of despond, you know, uh, suicidal, homicidal despondency, then, then we should, we should act accordingly. I wonder though, if there really are doomsday buttons, not just buttons where you kill a hundred people. I think the only solution, the only way we're going to survive is total surveillance of everybody. I think, you know, if it's possible for a high school kid to develop a virus that kills a billion people, then we need to have AI programs watching every single individual in the world, you know, ready to shock them or kill them if they're doing something bad, because it's just, you, you can't, you can't control 7 billion people. One of them is going to press the doomsday button if they have the chance. So we just, we have to maybe move to a totalitarian or some kind of surveillance state or else we don't make it. Again, if, assuming the technology develops where offense is much, much easier than defense. Yeah, I think you're, I, I think you've articulated a, a worry for sure that, that a lot of people have. Um, a legitimate, legitimate worry. I mean, it does seem sort of hopeless. I mean, you can even think it not even in terms of terror, but in terms of error. I mean, if, if there are 10 billion humans on the planet and, and a large number of them have access to, you know, to biological labs, you know, the biohacker movement is, is, uh, making equipment more and more accessible, uh, more and more affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the probability that somebody is going to make a mistake uh, even somebody very well intentioned, you know, hoping to cure, you know, the newest disease or, you know, some form of cancer. Mm. Yeah, the probability may be extremely high that somebody is going to, to release it. Maybe, maybe this has more to do with early detection systems and that, the sort of defensive technologies. But maybe it also, maybe even the air site has to do with surveillance as well to keep an eye on people and to, to, uh, to, to be able to preemptively anticipate, um, perhaps that's redundant, but to, to anticipate uh, when somebody's going to make a mistake or when a malicious agent is going to, you know, run towards the button and press it, you know, in hopes of, uh, you know, of killing as many human beings. Or just using it, you know, you, you're, you're making illegal substances in your home and, you know, you want the killer virus. So when the police knock on the door, you're like, hey, give me the hell, you know, leave me alone or I'm going to break this vial and wipe out humanity. Yeah. So yeah. Negotiation cases where being able to destroy the world would help your position quite a bit. Yeah, totally. You could definitely imagine these sort of, um, yeah, you know, a situation, you know, if you don't give me, if you don't give me a billion dollars, you know, then I'm going to release this, uh, this pathogen or, or even like the that 16, I, the 16 year old boy who tells, you know, the girl who rejects him, I'm going to destroy the world if you don't have sex with me. Yeah. You know, six year old boys would make that threat credible, you know, and it'd be believable. And some of them will, you know, they'll make do it by accident or they might do it deliberately, but that'll happen. I, I don't think that's a crazy thought. Um, you know, if, if technology does get accessible enough for adolescents to use, then yeah, that they could, you know, I mean, of, of all the, the agents. So now, if we, if we if we look in terms of sort of uh, uh, longitudinally across their their life, you know, it might be the case that the adolescent period might be uh, a time of heightened danger. Yeah. Uh, because Wait, yeah, sorry. I mean, the, the brain is is changing a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of hormones and chemicals that um, haven't quite reached that the nice you know balance and homeostasis that that you get once you come out of the adolescent fog. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really important. And 
Uh, the other thing I would say uh, that I would uh, that I feel like br brings out why it's important to, to understand uh, religious groups in particular is that there are one. I think that they're they're probably going to get worse. Just like I think egoterrorism might actually emerge as a a growing agential threat in the future because of climate change and biodiversity loss. Um, I think biodiversity loss and, and climate change could also fuel apocalyptic terrorism. Uh, not only could it re not only does it does it would it actually be interpreted as fulfilling prophecies because uh, you know a lot of the Abrahamic religions point to natural disasters and pestilence, uh, you know th th wars, things of this sort. Um, so it could actually reinforce their beliefs. On the other hand, simply by by uh, proliferating the number of conflicts in the world, it could uh, make it more likely that people, um, you know, as as the the scholar Mark Jurgensmeyer uh, puts it, he's a, he's a scholar of terrorism and apocalypticism. Uh, you know, extreme conditions breed extreme religion. Mm -hmm. So, so I I think on the one hand, like a, apocalyptic terrorism, not I said earlier, like religion's not going anywhere. So we can't just ignore it. Yeah, I, I agree. So like the transhumanist atheists who say, well, we just have to convince people not to believe in God. That's that's hopeless absent some weird genetic engineering experiment. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think even more when you start to look not just at these you know exogenous factors, but when you actually go inside their ideology, you find um, you you find it's, you know for example in Islam there are cycles of apocalyptic uh enthusiasm you know so every every turn of the century in the islamic calendar which is a little bit shorter than the calendar we use in the west uh there tends to be a heightened uh, you know as a bit of an increase in with respect to apocalyptic uh excitement and you could see this in the past 1979 was when the, the islamic uh or, sorry the, the iranian revolution uh, uh took place it's also when there was the grand mosque seizure, uh, which very few people have ever heard about, but it was a huge event involving like 500 insurgents who went into the Grand Mosque in, Mes in Mecca, which is a, a massive structure. There was some like 100,000 people inside the Grand Mosque at the time. These insurgents took it over, claimed that they had the, the end of days messianic figure with them called the Mahdi and held the people there for, you know, for two weeks, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, th there were a bunch of events that happened it, uncoincidentally in 1979 because that was 1400 in the Islamic calendar. And so if you look into the future, 1500 is 2076. And without a doubt, I mean, there, there are top scholars of Islam. Uh, David Cook is one at Rice University. He's sort of considered, uh, you know, a, a leading uh, scholar of Islamic apocalypticism in the world, uh, certainly in the West. And... And he also has warned about 2067 that this is a this is a year that there probably is going to be this increase in apocalyptic fervor, and we should be more vigilant than usual about somebody attempting to basically do something big and catastrophic. And who the heck knows what kind of technologies yeah. are going to exist in 2076? There could very well be a big red doomsday button <laughs> of some sort. Um, that they may look at and say and, and interpret as saying, uh, kill the infidels, you know, and that's what we need to do. This is what God has charged us with. It's a divine mission. We have to push the button. 
Um, so yeah, so it's it's really really important to you know only by studying the Islamic tradition can you can you conclude that oh you know 2076 also in the other dates like April 19th is one for U.S. Uh, you know, Christian right-wing extremists. 2039 is a date to look to to be particularly aware of with respect to uh, apocalyptic individuals within the the Shia tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there's lots and lots to say. I mean, it could be a whole other whole other podcast. Um, but this is why I think existential um, risk uh, scholars really should should take seriously the agential side. Because um, again, as I said at the very beginning, one of the strategies for mitigating the probability of an existential catastrophe in the coming centuries is to neutralize the agent as much as possible. And this means understanding what the properties are of those agents. Yeah, that makes sense. So existential risk scholars need to study religion. Yeah, there's yeah, or at least there needs to be a sort of a subdiscipline mm-hmm. um, that is in communication with you know because because not you can't know everything. So you know perhaps there needs to be some cognitive division of labor. Um, but yeah, I, I think my sense, and I certainly don't, I, I suspect some people would, would disagree with me at least a, a little bit, but I, I sense that there are a lot of scholars out there who are working on existential risk who really don't want to touch politics and don't want to touch religion. And, and there's good, there's without a doubt, there's so, a good strategic argument for being very careful about your criticism of religion. You don't just want to say, you know, religious people are foolish. Uh, that's because you need to work with right, the, right. these communities and, you know, that's pragmatically critical for, uh, you know, for neutralizing the, the relevant um, risks. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you on that. Yeah. But I guess it's hard, especially, I mean, there's language barriers to learning about these religions and there's so many different sub-disciplines of these religions too. Yes. To get a handle on it is it's probably very difficult unless you were raised in it. Yes. <laughs> I don't disagree at all. It's it's really hard. I mean, I more or less taught myself about uh, Islam, and it was. I mean, there was a huge learning curve. It was very hard to sort of get in the mindset, and you know, it, it's like most things. I feel like the more you learn, the easier it is to learn more. So you know, once you establish the sort of fundamentals, uh, it's easy. To, but I mean, the point is is ultimately to uh, affirm your your statement that it is really hard to understand these super complex social phenomena. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And I genuinely believe, as I think the, the thought experiments uh, earlier um, show, that that we just can't ignore these things. I mean, it's really important to do our best to, to understand them. Okay, well, thank you. I think I've uh, taken up enough of your time. Is, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? Um, no, nothing nothing comes okay. to my mind right away, but I, I really, really enjoyed the conversation, and I, I am super appreciative that you asked me on. Oh, sure. I'm glad you're able to make the time to talk with me. Well, um, thank you very much. So this is um, Phil Torres, and you're the founder of the X-Risk Institute, and you just um, do a Google search for X-Risk Institute, and you'll, you'll find it. And you're the author of The End, What Science and Religion Tell Us About the Apocalypse, which was published this year. So thank yes. you very much for being a guest on my show. Yeah, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. Sure. Bye-bye. Take care.